So you know the viral videos that have been making their rounds, the ones showing Black people, usually men, attacking unsuspecting Asian folks, usually elderly Asians? You've seen these, right? Even you who've not been on social media? Okay. These are, without a doubt, atrocious, awful incidents, right? We don't want anybody to be harmed. And since we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time, I think we also really need to state that these viral videos are giving us an inaccurate impression of anti-Asian hate. Mm, I think that's really important because have you noticed, for example, that whenever we talk about the disproportionate incarceration rate of Black men in America, or whenever we talk about police violence against Black men in America, or basically anything else discussing anti-Black racism, there seems to be a critical mass of people who come back and say something to the effect of, well, what about Black on Black crime? Or what about Black on Asian crime? Which is to say, throwing around misperceptions and misunderstandings about true facts to somehow try to justify the horrific level of discrimination and structural harm Black people in this country have to live through day after day. Well, if you noticed it, we noticed it too. And we can't say it loud enough that these arguments aren't accurate. We won't have time to go into all of these on this episode because this could be, you know, 12 episodes then. So for more on these specific points, please go buy our book. We go into detail there, lots of detail. But anyway, back to this episode. For example, it turns out, especially when we're talking about that, what about Black on Asian crime? According to a University of Maryland College Park study, most anti-Asian hate crimes are committed by white people, not Black people. Significantly so, more than three quarters of offenders of anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents from both before and during the pandemic have been white. Let's sit with that for a second. You know, it's such a different perception than what those viral videos would have us believe. And so we want to have this conversation as part of our mixed race Asian arc, focusing on what we believe should really be a point of solidarity, but has instead become misunderstood to be this divisive issue with regard to Black and Asian Americans. As you know, we love data. So we're going to give you actual data as a reminder for all of us that we really need to train ourselves to pause when we see narratives that pit one historically marginalized group against another historically marginalized group. And we have to ask ourselves, is this true? Because sometimes they're really just serving as a distraction to change the conversation, to move us away from the, quote, real enemy, right? Which is to say white supremacy. Dismantling white supremacy is where all of us, Asians, Black folks, white folks, and more, we need to keep our energy focused there. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right. So here we go. And, you know, the gist of this entire episode is here's some information that might make you pause and rethink the narratives that only serve to distract us from the harm that white supremacy is causing in our society. So Sarah, as you mentioned, we love facts and truth, right? So let's start with some facts about crime statistics. Awesome. Nothing like a lighthearted conversation. <laughs> well, let me start it with a question. When you think about hate crimes, what sort of hate crimes do you hear about? You know, to be honest, lately, I've been thinking about anti-transgender hate because of our recent conversation with our fellow biracial Asian and white activist and educator Skylar Baylor and his amazing book, He, She, They. And I also think about it because there's just this proliferation of anti-trans laws that are all over the news headlines and our feeds. But it's worth noting that the majority of hate crimes, right, like nearly 60 percent 
of them were because of somebody's race, ethnicity, or ancestry. And 60%, I mean, that is a lot more, a larger percentage than crimes that have been done based on people's religion or sexual orientation, both of which were at the next highest level. They were about 17% of overall hate crimes. And then you see crimes based on gender identity and disability. And then what I think is even more significant is when you step out of these categories of hate crimes and you just look at targets of hate crimes, Black people were the target of more than one-fifth or 20% of all hate crimes reported in major U.S. cities last year. That was the largest share of any group. And that's according to a new report based on police data analyzed by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. So even though official 2019 law enforcement data shows a drop in anti-Black hate crime reports, a fall by an average of about 6% after surging the previous two years, Black people were still by far the most targeted racial group. Jewish people came in second, dealing with 16% of all hate incidents. And keep in mind, going back to thinking about it, it's worth keeping an eye on how those stats are going to change depending on how the effects of the war between Israel and Hamas ripple through society. Because I know that a lot of our friends are fearful right now. Yes. And I would say there is no doubt that both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise, right, as a result. So I think this is like talking about winning the worst sort of oppression Olympics, I think, possible too, right? Because these are terrible statistics. But I really appreciate you pointing these out because I think it's so important to hold these things in our minds. As you mentioned at the very start, like multiple things can be true at once. And as we shift a little bit into last year and, you know, prior years, sort of 2020 onward, when Asian Americans dealt with coronavirus specific stereotypes, 27% of Asian Americans reported having experienced hate crimes or incidents. But in that same time period, 34% of Black Americans did, according to an AAPI data survey. And compared to this, you know, the study that you referenced earlier, the author of the study also said that official law enforcement statistics show that in the 26 largest jurisdictions, which include areas like New York City, anti-Asian hate crimes accounted for 6.3% of all reported hate crimes, which ended up being a much smaller percentage of overall hate crimes than Black people face, for sure. So let's not forget, the data shows that even when COVID rhetoric caused anti-Asian crimes to spike, the real constant here was that high level and still higher level of anti-Black crime. So I think it's important to keep all these things in perspective because all of these things can be true at once. There can be anti-Asian hate crimes and there can be even more anti-Black hate crimes out there. I think that's so important to know. And I think this is the part that is also really, really important to note because the offenders Right. According to the Justice Department of the 10,299 known offenders in the year of 2022, 51% were white. And then so that's a majority of the people perpetrating hate crimes were white. And separate research from the University of Michigan's Virulent Hate Project, which examined media reports about anti-Asian incidents in the last year, upwards of 75% of news stories identified perpetrators as male and white in instances of physical or verbal assault and harassment when the race of the perpetrator was in fact confirmed. So again, whether it's 51% or 75%, it still shows that this is a majority of perpetrators being white. And so going back to how we started with those videos, trying to create this narrative of Black on Asian hate and violence and to change that focus, let's keep in mind, again, we're talking about instances of individual hate, which is different than white supremacy, but we just want to make sure we're focused on the correct narrative coming from actual data, not viral videos. 
Right. So, I mean, all of this data seems pretty clear. So then why is there, you know, as opposed to the facts that we were just talking about, this erroneous narrative of Black on Asian crime and tension between these two groups when facts, right, continue to show that white people are often the perpetrators of hate crimes against people of color? So it seems like there are several things at play here. And one, you know, that we pulled from researching this episode was a great perspective from Box. And it talks about who is the other. And their quote was, the fact is that Black Americans are native-born Americans. And like all native-born people, they are susceptible to xenophobic and nationalistic sentiments that can place blame on an other. In this case, Asian Americans, who can be seen as forever foreigners, even if they too are native-born. So that's one possible Right. We've discussed this, like this idea of who gets to be American and how many times have Asian Americans or people of Asian descent in America been asked, no, where are you really from? Right. If there is a perpetual othering of Asians in America. Right. So there's that. Right. Who gets to be an American? And then there's always economic competition. Right. Because when newcomers enter the country, they encounter and this is again from Box, they encounter a system that reserves the best for wealthy white Americans engendering resentment and zero-sum thinking about everyone among everyone else for whatever is left. And, you know, as we've talked about very recently, especially when the immigration system changed in 1965, which moved from a quota system to this push for hyper-skilled labor and that family reunification, right? And Asian Americans who were selected to immigrate in this program had much higher socioeconomic and educational attainment relative not only to their country of origin, but also to the native-born U.S. population. So they're coming in at a different level. So definitely competition. And then I think that we cannot ignore the power of media, right? And that baked in bias. When Asians who are new to America consumed American media, they internalized the racist depictions of Black Americans as violent, uneducated, and poor. Because hello, wouldn't that just automatically create tension? And I I think that you have to think about that time period in which Asians are coming into the country, right? Especially coming from 1965 onward. They miss the civil rights era, right? And the struggle and Black Americans fighting for everyone, right? So this is the narrative that they saw. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that while I think in the last five to 10 years, we have seen more intentional depictions of people of color having main characters and speaking characters and really empowering movies being made. Even people within the entertainment industry today continue to say it is fighting a continuous battle to get adequate representation and accurate depictions of the breadth of humanity available to non-white characters in our media. You know, like there was a, and working in DEI in that industry. So even though I would say, personally, I've noticed a shift in who we're seeing in TV is still just a tiny shift. It's not a huge shift and it is still very, very recent. And so we have to continuously question our intake of this media. Right. I think that's so important. And when you consider all these factors together, right, not just each one individually, as we were just discussing, this creates a level of tension between groups that, as we've also discussed at the start of this episode, change the narrative from the one and the common enemy from the one that we should all be fighting, right, white supremacy towards each other. And so Janelle Wong, which was the author of that report from the University of Maryland College Park, thinks you know, that one of the reasons why these tensions are coming increasingly, you know, more prevalent in the sense that they're visible 
is that there's a misread of a frequently cited study from 2021 published in the American Journal of Criminal Justice that likely contributed to the spread of all of these erroneous narratives. The study, which examined hate crime data from 1992 to 2014, found that compared to anti-Black and anti-Latino hate crimes, a higher proportion of perpetrators of anti-Asian hate crimes were people of color, though the majority are white. So I think what we're talking about here is nuance, right? Also, multiple things can be true at once, right? Critical thinking and accurate analysis are really needed to take us, you know, information like that and really look at not only the underlying causes, but ask the question, is this true, right? And is this true on a micro or a macro scale? And one other thing that she notes in that study is really importantly, you have security camera videos that are more available and prevalent in certain types of urban settings. And so that's what's available to people in terms of sharing. There's just something so powerful about these visual images, going back to those you know, viral videos, Sarah, that you were talking about at the start, so that no matter what the social science might say, people believe their eyes and especially the images that get played on repeat now. So important right? The psychology behind how we get our information and what we what sways our opinion. Again, critical thinking and, and so important to consider as we go forward and generative AI starts taking you know over media creation when we're heading into elections that are going to be fraught with disinformation coming from all sorts of sources. We have to be really thoughtful about where we get our information from and who we actually trust and what truth is and what science is and all of these things. But not to get too far off the point, I think we really have to emphasize the perpetrators were largely white. And I know some of the analysis came from media reports, but I don't think, you know, knowing that so many anti-Asian hate crimes were, went unreported, the media certainly isn't largely focusing on the fact that the perpetrators were largely white. The narratives that we're hearing are not focusing on that which means that a lot of us are not focusing on it, right? The racism and hatred stemming from white people is what is causing many other people harm. And if you're listening and you're white, that might hurt and it's worth sitting with. I heard a great quote on my latest Peloton ride and it was, power is comfortable, but discomfort is where the change happens. So going back to that statement, the racism and hatred stemming from white people is what's causing many people harm. What can you do with that information? And I think one thing you and I wanted to do with this episode, Misasha, is to help shift the narrative. How do we move away from this false idea that there's this, you know, unbearable tension and violent animosity between Black and Asian folks, right? Individual stories and biases aside, because those do exist, but we're talking about systemic problems. That is not the truth. Completely. And, you know, Sarah, I'm glad you asked that question because I've got an idea. We can look at history, which I know if you've listened to this podcast for more than one episode, this surprises you exactly 0% because it's one of my favorite things to do. But I think that history shows us that these tensions didn't always exist. And in fact, they don't have to exist, right? There has been a number of examples of Black and Asian alignment throughout history. I actually, now that you mentioned that, want to share one example that sprung to mind when you said that, Yuri Kochiyama. So she, and I know her name because she was in Rad American Women A to Z, which happens to be a book by one of our friends in this space, Kate Schatz. And I remember reading that book to my kid. It was like our bedtime book for ages. And so that is when I learned about why Yuri Kochiyama. And long story short, she was a Japanese, a tireless Japanese American activist who started really being more vocal in Harlem 
in the early 1960s, and she participated in Asian American, Black, and Third World movements for civil and human rights, for ethnic studies. She stood against the war in Vietnam. And talk about icons. She met Malcolm X and joined his organization for Afro-American unity. She and Malcolm X organized a reception for the Hibakusha, which is like the survivors of the atomic bomb in Japan, at her home in Harlem's Manhattanville housing projects. So Yuri Kochiyama, Asian woman, Asian American woman worked in the Regis and reparations movement for Japanese Americans along with her husband, Bill, and really just is a shining example, a, a really solid example of what working for collective good can look like, working in partnership towards goals, right? Misasha, you've always often said in the past, let's not run away from things. Let's know what we're moving towards. And they were moving towards solidarity and better lives and human rights for all. So, oh. I love that you shared that. I think that is really a powerful example. I have another example, which might seem controversial when people first hear about it, because it's about the LA riots, which I think people often hold up as like one of the worst examples, right, of Black and Asian tension. But what I want to talk about is not the LA riots, but sort of the aftermath of the LA riots, because dealing with collective harm and working together to overcome not only collective harm, but really build a collective future is so important. And this was a great example of trying to do that, right? Because after the LA riots in 1992, African-American and Korean-American leaders worked towards interracial solidarity and restorative justice through local churches and community organizations. A critical first step was educating both communities about their respective histories, including shared experiences of colonization, oppression, discrimination, and resistance. And I think that's so important because the emphasis there was on shared history. For Korean immigrant business owners who had little understanding of the brutal history of U.S. race relations, education and experience in Black neighborhoods ushered in a new manner of empathy. Among Asian groups, Korean Americans hold some of the most progressive attitudes on these fronts. For example, more than nine in 10 Korean Americans believe that there is at least some discrimination against Black people in our society today. 70% also agree that the government should do more to protect the civil rights of Black Americans. And 67% agree that local governments should shift spending from law enforcement to programs. But even among Asian Americans more generally, many recognize commonalities with Black Americans. New research shows that half of Asian Americans across 10 different national origin groups feel that they have something or a lot in common with Black Americans when it comes to government, political power, and representation. And I love that because I think that there, the solidarity is what gets us to that different narrative. Get That's what gets us to fighting against the common enemy of white supremacy. And it's such a powerful thing to do in the aftermath of what could be seen as such a divisive racial conflict, right? If you take it for sort of what it looked like at face value. And I, I want to go back because you touched on this earlier when you talked about Yuri Kochiyama, Sarah, but let's not forget how vocal Japanese American community organizations such as the Japanese American Citizens League or JACL and Sudo for Solidarity have been with regard to the reparations movement for Black Americans. In fact, as we were researching this episode, and by researching, I mean literally yesterday, I received an email from Sudo for Solidarity about Assembly Bill a7691, which was passed by the New York legislature in June and would form a new commission on Black reparations. In Sudo for Solidarity's own words, this bill is an essential response to the historical injustices and longstanding anti-Black violence that Black New Yorkers have endured for centuries. The person standing in the way of this bill becoming law currently is the governor of New York. 
So Tsuru for Solidarity is circulating a petition designed to show support from the Japanese American community on the theory that redress for Black Americans is distinctly intertwined with reparations for the Japanese American community. And I would say they're not wrong about that. That is amazing. I love that they're doing that. And I feel like I still have a strong foothold in the Japanese American community in New York. And I'm going to ask you to forward me that email so that I can ship that over there. Like, I think that's fascinating. And again, going back to history, use our experience as a Japanese American community fighting for reparations after the incarceration during World War II and use that to help forward the cause of reparations for Black Americans to atone for slavery. I mean, yes, right? I think one thing I want to tease here is that next week we'll get to share with you a deeply inspiring conversation with biracial Black and Chinese actor Ryan Alexander Holmes about his personal experiences being mixed race Asian in America and how he responds to questions about Black on Asian crime, because this is his lived experience and he's incredible. So I really hope and we really hope that you listen. And speaking of listening, you know, Sarah, at one part in this episode, you really directed this to our white listeners. And right now, I really want to direct this next part, or we want to direct this next part directly to our Asian listeners. Despite the title of this podcast being Dear White Women, we also want to make sure that particularly in this next part, we call in our Asian community. Because for so long, Asians have been seen as the model minority, and we deconstruct this in episodes 114 and 179. So please go listen to those for more, especially if you're unfamiliar with the term. And Asians have been used as a wedge historically and currently to further anti-Black sentiment in this country. As in, well, they were able to be successful, so why aren't you successful? We can deconstruct all of these harmful, inaccurate thoughts in those episodes. So please go back and listen. Yes, I'm glad you brought those to our attention. And I think this next part is super important for everyone to listen to, because there is a trap that some Asian Americans have fallen into, and it's this concept of white adjacency, right? This idea of being privileged, but still excluded. I mean, you can see white adjacency in action when, and this is hard to say, but I have heard it, so I'm going to share it, but you hear some Asian folks say things like, well, I don't really consider myself Asian, or I'm not really a minority, right? As if their upbringing can erase what you look like, as if people won't judge you, even though humans are absolutely made to judge always and constantly, like that's just in human nature to judge. And so what happens sometimes when white people internalize the notion that Asians are not discriminated against, right? It erases identity, it erases culture. As in the story my friend Alan told on our podcast as well, he's a Chinese man, son of immigrants, and was out in New York City at a barbecue place with a white friend from high school. Apparently, the barbecue place was full of Black people. And when the white friend picked up a call from her mom, she goes, Mom, we're the only white people in here. (laughs) Like, I am Chinese. Like, clearly, in that moment, his heritage, his entire being was made invisible. So going back to what is it, in the words of Dr. Namisha Barton, white adjacency or this idea of proximity to whiteness is really, quote, uh, having access to certain forms of power, resources, as well as social, economic, and cultural capital that have been historically constructed to advantage white people in this country at the expense of people of color, generally, and Black and Indigenous Americans in particular, right? My friend had the capital and the money and the ability to hang out with white people for long enough that he was not seen as who he was. He was white adjacent. He had all of these privileges like given to him by this friend. Yeah. And I think the problem comes from when 
Asians internalize this, right? Because I think one example of this in action, right, very recently is the Students for Affirmative Action case with where you had a, not a white plaintiff class in an affirmative action lawsuit or plaintiff, right, which is typical of past affirmative action lawsuits, but you have an Asian plaintiff and an Asian plaintiff class. And I think that that in particular is harmful because it ignores this whole concept. And it lumps all Asians into this monolith that falsely suggests that all Asians are doing equally well, right? And they're not. Look at the income differentials between people coming from the 48 plus different Asian nations, right? The largest gap among any ethnic group, for example. And it also raises the real concerns people of Asian descent have with discrimination in the culture of white supremacy, with people acting on harmful stereotypes from teachers saying, well, you should do better at math or bosses not promoting people because they're not great leaders to all the way to random acts of anti-Asian violence. And this is all based on how people believe people of Asian descent look and act. So proximity to whiteness will not save you. Proximity to whiteness actually hurts us all. And I think we need all Asian folks to see and understand that, that we too, as Asian people, are being harmed by systems of white supremacy. I don't think we can emphasize this enough. Asian people are not a monolith. They are not white people. And without raising our awareness, we can easily be used as pawns in this like horrible game of racism and white supremacy. I want to really emphasize that Asian people can speak up against injustice. Asian people can make change. And I know on an individual level, I mean, Sasha, you and I have spoken about this. It is so ingrained in our immigrant culture, in our Asian culture to keep our heads down and get on with the work and not disrupt things. But we really, really challenge it. I think that one example of the power of this is one case that wound up changing the law for all of us. And that's Wong Kim Ark, who was born in San Francisco back in 1873 had been denied re-entry to the United States after a trip abroad under this law that was restricting Chinese immigration and prohibiting immigrants from China from becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. And he challenged the government's refusal to recognize his citizenship, and the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, right? The United States versus Wong Kim Ark and was a landmark decision, and that established birthright citizenship or this idea that any child born to you in the United States becomes a citizen at birth total case of a person of Asian descent based on his own experience, paving the way for change for better for so many others. I love that example because I think it is so important in the agency of the individual, right? Even if others around you aren't doing that, your voice is still powerful. And so really, bottom line, more people, including Asian people, and especially white people, I mean, really all of us, right, need to remember that we are in this together. All of us, every one of us needs to really pull ourselves away from any attachment to white adjacency or white privilege and join this fight that we are all in, right, to dismantle unjust systems of white supremacy. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.